Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com. Well, good morning. My name is Joshua Rushing. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, our uh, senior pastor, Jeff, is on some much-needed and deserved vacation, so I just want to take a moment just to pray for him, that the God would continue to give him rest and peace. Father, would you cover him and his family? Would you cause your face to shine upon him and give him peace? Lord, we pray for increased rest for his mind, for his body. Would you cover him? Show him your favor and delight. Bring him back safely, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about the unshakable foundations of a joy-filled life. You know, Pastor Jeff has been talking uh, uh, quite a bit here recently about joy. Joy and how joy actually can affect our brains in a very specific way. Like neurologically, there's physical things that begin to, to rewire and reshape our brains when our brains experience joy. And how many of you know that our world and, and our families need a little bit of joy right now? The last year and a half have been a little bit heavy, right? Am I, am I the only one who's been affected by the last year and a half? The last year and a half has been heavy. I mean, the pain the sorrow, the, the, the deaths of loved ones, the having to deal with, with being alone and sequestered and away from other people. I mean, this has been a really dark and heavy year and a half, but we don't have to worry, beloved. The Lord has a remedy. This did not catch the Lord by surprise. He doesn't want us to stay underneath heaviness. He has a remedy, and it's called joy. So we're going to talk a little bit about joy. What is joy, and why is joy so important for us in this hour? I read a study recently um, from a neuroscientist from UC Irvine, and he said this about, uh, about COVID. He was talking about writing about COVID in the last 18 months and the effects that it has on our brain. And he says that we are all walking around with some mild cognitive impairment, Based on everything we know about the brain, two things that are really good for the brain are physical activity and novelty. A thing that's very bad for the brain is uh, chronic and perpetual stress. So th this is not a, he, he wasn't a Bible teacher, this is just a, a scientist that says stress, perpetual and chronic stress actually is bad for our physical brain. It's not good. So the, the isolation and the quarantine and all the sickness has literally given us, in a sense, a, a type of brain damage. Now, let me ask a question. How many of you have found yourself over the last six, eight months or so being more forgetful than normal? <laughs> I'm telling you. And, and we, they, they're actually, some people are actually calling it COVID brain. Because, I mean, our lives, because of the stress and the trauma, our brains just are foggy. And, and, and I find myself forgetting things that I normally remember, like taking out the trash on what day? Like Saturday, Friday? Sat Saturday, yeah. I think it comes on Saturday. But our brains, we're, we're kind of walking around in this fog. And that's, that's not good for our brains. But, again, like I said earlier, the good news is God has a remedy. 
Jim Wilder, who wrote a book called The Other Half of Church that we as, we've been reading here as a staff, he says that God has designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on gas, gasoline. Scientifically, our brains actually run, are fed, and, and come alive in a new way when they experience the pleasure of joy. So in essence, we can override the negative effects that COVID has had on our brains by feeding it what? Okay, so you get where we're going today? All right, let's hop right on in. Joy. Turn to Psalm 1611. I'll have it on the screen if you don't want to turn to it, but I like to turn to scriptures. Psalm 1611, this is one of my favorite, probably one of my top 200 verses, favorite verses in the Bible. I've got a lot of them. This is definitely one of my favorites. Psalm 1611 says, You will show me, O Lord, the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. I'm going to read that again just because I love that verse so much. Lord, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. Everybody say fullness. The fullness of joy in your presence. And at your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. So in God's presence... Joy is complete. That word fullness literally means like to overflow. Like the, the highest amount of joy you can have is in the presence of God. It's abundant. It's satisfying. And that's really good news for us, that there's abounding joy in his presence. But I have some questions. What is joy in the first place? What is joy? Is joy just walking around with a cheesy smile on your face? No, you might have a cheesy smile on your face, but that's not necessarily what joy is. What is joy, and why is there so much joy where God is? If this passage says, in his presence, where he is, there's abundant, overflowing joy. First of all, what is joy, and why is there so much joy where God is? And then my third question I had to ask myself about this passage is, if God is omnipresent, if God is everywhere, and God actually dwells inside of me through his indwelling spirit, can I have joy all the time? Can I have joy at all times, in the bad times, in the good times, in the low times, in the high times? Because it says where his presence is, there's fullness of joy, and he lives in me. So I actually can have joy no matter what my circumstances are. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he once wrote that joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. What he was trying to communicate there was the, how, the, the place that joy has in the Christian life. He, for C.S. Lewis, joy is one of, the highest, uh, one of the highest things we can experience as a believer, and I tend to agree with him. Joy is an absolute essential part of Christ-like living. After all, Jesus himself, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, Jesus himself was anointed with the oil of joy more than all of his companions. Jesus, the Jewish man Jesus, the Savior of the world, was anointed with more joy than any human being to ever live. 
How many of you have seen some of those Jesus movies from like the 70s and like the Jesus flick and, you know, some of the little movies about that? I, I kind of have a problem with a lot of those because most of the time Jesus has a, has a solemn, like, frown on his face. He just walks around like this. Oh, Father, how long must I put up with these I mean, he's just so sad, and like the British accent throws me off too. I'm not really sure where that comes from. But he's the saddest, most solemn-looking guy. Beloved, that's not what the Bible says about Jesus. He was anointed with gladness and with joy. He, was a, he, he, he loved to laugh. He loved to play jokes on his disciples. The Bible actually tells us. Did y'all know that there's a joke in the, in the Bible that Jesus actually tells a, pulls a joke on his disciples? If you go read about one of the stories, one of the Gospels um, that talks about the story of him walking on the water, his disciples are in the boat at night on a haunted sea, okay? These are fishermen, and this sea was known for these storms that would pop up all of a sudden. I've been there. I've been to the, been to the sea, and these storms would pop up out of nowhere, and it would just absolutely crush some of these little boats that were out there. And there were, there were tons and tons of sunken boats in this sea. And so this sea was known as the fisherman, by the fishermen as a haunted sea because all of the dead fishermen and all the, the boats that, have, that had crashed in there. And so they're sailing on this haunted sea, Jesus knowing that these guys know all the folklore and the stories. And it says Jesus then, it said, having, would have walked right past them. But one of the disciples cried out, it's a ghost. Jesus wasn't walking to them on the boat. He was going to walk right by them. Knowing they were freaked out about the ghost on the water. He's going to like, watch this, Father. Check this one out. Oh, he probably even made that noise. I don't know. He's like, oh, Jesus. And it said he would have walked right past the boat. He was totally freaking them out. And one of the disciples was like, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. Why did he think it was a ghost? Because he, he knew the stories. And Jesus is like, I'm going to get them. Totally a practical joke. Jesus was so happy, so filled with joy. Another example, do you remember when all the children were coming around Jesus and the disciples like put on their little usher jackets and were like, excuse me, kids, uh, back away, back away from the Messiah. He's a holy man. He's serious. He's got serious business to do. And Jesus said, guys, what are y'all doing? Let the kids come to me. Let the kids come. Now, do you think the kids have said, oh, thank you, and the kids just walked up? No, the kids were running. What do they do when, they, when, when the kids want to be around somebody? Do the kids want to be around somebody with a sour look on their face? Hmm? You ever met a kid that just looks, looks at an old man like this, and the kid goes, oh, I like him. <laughs> kids are attracted to what? Joy, smiles, jokes. And the kids wanted to be around Jesus. That's why the disciples were going, hey, hey, back up, back up, back up. Jesus said, no, let him come, let him come. This is Jesus. It's not the solemn British-speaking Jesus from the 70s movies. He was anointed with gladness and joy. So if this is who Jesus is, to be Christ-like, to be a Christian, to be conformed to the image of Christ means that we need to ever increasingly walk in. Come on. 
So this is a time for the church to discover joy and how to walk in it and experience God's pleasure and joy. So what is joy? What is joy in the first place? Well, if you crack open Webster, the Webster's Dictionary, Webster defines joy as an emotion evoked by spiritual or by well-being, a state of happiness or a source or a cause of delight. A source or a cause of delight. That's Webster. The Old Testament word for joy carries the meaning of gladness, delight, and pleasure. Everybody say pleasure. Guys, that's not a dirty word in the church, okay? Pleasure. It's a good word. The New Testament word for joy carries the meaning to lean towards or to be favorably disposed or to show favor. All right, so Webster says it's a source of delight. The Old Testament says it's uh, gladness and pleasure. The New Testament said it's favor or to be favorably disposed towards or to lean into or to lean towards. Do you guys know that there are over 500 verses in the Bible that talk about God's gladness and pleasure? 500. I've counted them. I've typed them out. I've listed them. I've underlined every single one of them from Genesis to Revelation. I've gone through the whole Bible. There are over 500 verses that talk about God's gladness and God's pleasure. But yet somehow in the church, we think God is just this solemn guy with a with a baton waiting for us to mess up just so he can smack us over the head. I told you not to do that. Arr, like he's just this sour old man. 500 verses in the Bible that talk about how glad and full of pleasure and delight he is. That's more verses than Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon combined. That's a lot of verses. That's, over, that's, over, that's, that's almost like half of Paul's epistles. That's over half of Paul's letters. That's how many verses talk about God's gladness and pleasure. But we actually don't hear a lot about that in our churches. We don't hear about how happy God is and how full of pleasure God is. Dr. Alan Shore, who's an American neuroscientist, he beautifully defines joy relationally. He says joy is this, quote, someone who is happy to see me and being the sparkle in someone's eye. This is a neuroscientist. He said, they've discovered that the root of joy is the thing that happens in the brain when it knows that someone else is happy to see them. Or knowing that you're that sparkle in someone's eye. You ever walk into a room with somebody and all of a sudden you can just tell they're glad that you're there? There's something that happens in their face. There's a little... A little, a little their, their eyes get a little wider. Maybe their cheeks, their, their, you know, their, their eyebrows, whatever those things are, eyebrows kind of go up. You can tell when someone's happy to see you. And this neuroscientist, Dr. Alan Shore, says, we've discovered that joy at its root is the thing that happens in the brain when it knows that it's enjoyed, when it knows that it's, someone's happy to see them. So if we combine all of these definitions together, I've kind of created my own little working definition of joy by combining Webster in the Old Testament, New Testament, and, and this neuroscientist here. Joy is experiencing the pleasure of knowing that somebody knows you, loves you, and enjoys you. Joy is experiencing the pleasure of knowing that someone knows you, loves you, and enjoys you. 
Here's an example of how the Old Testament describes this. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. You know, there's a lot of scriptures in our Bible that talk about the light of God's countenance. You guys, you guys have heard some scriptures about that. Shine the light of your countenance on us, O Lord. The light of God's countenance numbers that comes from Numbers 26, or Numbers 6, 24 through 26. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Psalm 4, 6 says it this way. There are many who say, Who will show us any good? O Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. So this phrase, shine the light of your countenance, is used over and over again in Scripture. And to be honest with you, it's a little bit unfortunate that the English translations make it sound so like lofty and conceptual. Shine the light of thy countenance. It's like we're like, yeah, great. I don't have a clue what that means. But that is an idiom in Hebrew. That phrase is an idiom that literally means the look of delight on God's face. That's what that means. It means, so when we're saying, Lord, shine thy light of thy countenance, we're saying, Lord, let me see the look of delight in your eyes. That's literally what that means. You know, I used to do an exercise uh, in some of my classes where I would have everybody close their eyes and I would say, I'm not going to do it now, so you're off the hook. But I would say, everybody close your eyes and picture God like, or Jesus. Just, just picture them just standing right in front of you. You're literally standing face to face with God. And I want you to make your face make the same look that's on God's face. And I would sit there, and I'd keep my eyes open. Everybody else had their eyes closed. And I would say, just make your face make the look that's on God's face. And rarely would I get somebody that had the look of pure joy and delight. And we would debrief about it. We'd ask them, and they were, and they were like, well, I just never thought God was, like, super happy with me, you know, because that thing I did yesterday and that thing I said about so-and-so yesterday, you know, he was kind of upset. He was, like, frustrated. Like, rarely did I have somebody that just had this look of pure delight and pleasure on their face. But this scripture, oh, Lord, let shine the light of your countenance. It's, Lord, let me see the look on your face that you're happy to see me. Psalm 17, verse 8, there's a prayer in there that I pray quite often. It says, oh, Lord, keep me as the apple of your eye. Have you guys heard that verse before? You guys read that? Keep me as the apple of your eye. That's another phrase. That's another idiom in the in Hebrew language. That me, the apple of your eye literally means the little man in your eye. That's what that means. The little man in your eye. So, well, that's kind of strange. So as I began to ponder that, begin to pray about it, I was like, Lord, what does that mean? The, keep me as the little man in your eye. Well, let me ask you this. When you're up close and personal with somebody and you look into their eye, there's a reflection, Right? Who's the reflection in the eye that you're looking at? It's you, right? So this keep me as the apple of your eye. It says, Lord, let's get so close to each other that I can see the little man. I can see my reflection in your eye. 
Beloved, you were made to be the recipient of God's delight and his pleasure and his joy. In fact, going back to that Psalm 16 verse, in your presence is the fullness of joy. That word presence really is the word that, the same word that we get face from. In your face is the fullness of joy. So these three truths that I mentioned earlier, that someone loves you, that someone knows you, that someone loves you, and someone enjoys you, those are the three foundations of joy. And I know this has been a long intro. The rest of it should go pretty fast. But three things we're going to look at today, and they are the three foundations of joy. These are unshakable foundations. If you put your joy in other things, if you put your joy in how you think others think about you, or if you put your joy in the numbers that are in your bank account, if you put your joy in how many pair of shoes you have in, in, in your closet, if you put your joy in these other things, those things can be taken away. Those things can be shaken. And if your joy is in those things, then your joy will be shaken. But I'm telling you, if your joy, if you root your joy if you let these three things be the foundations of your joy, you can live a joy-filled life and it cannot be shaken. And it's these three things. God knows you, God loves you, and God enjoys interacting with you. So let's look at that first one. The joy of being known. The joy of being known. The first foundation stone of a joy-filled life is that God knows me. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Again, I'll have some of these verses on the screen, but I encourage you to t turn to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 of his followers, two by two, into the surrounding cities to preach the kingdom of God and, and to heal the sick. When they return, this is Luke 10, 17, so Jesus sends out his buddies, his guys. He goes, I want you to go out two by two into the surrounding areas. I want you to preach the kingdom, and I want you to heal the sick. Now, that's a great ministry trip right there. So they come back, and when they come back, they're ecstatic. They're like pumped. They're on cloud nine, man. They're like, Jesus, you are not going to believe this. <laughs> He's like, yeah, try me. Jesus. We had a great ministry trip. Man, we were preaching the kingdom. There was this one girl, she was demonized, and we were like, get out of there, demon. And the demon left. They left the girl. And the other guy said, oh, man, there was one time, there were two demonized people, and I cast both of those demons out in your name, Jesus. I mean, they were pumped. They were so happy, and they were sharing stories. I mean, I've got, three, I've got three girls, and when they come home from just one day of school where nothing happened, it's just, Daddy, 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 this happened, this happened, and then I, and then I ate my carrot, and my carrot hurt my tooth, and it's just all these things. It's just blah, 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 blah. Can you imagine coming back from a ministry trip of 70 people where they were casting out demons left and right? I mean, they were sharing story after story. And if I know the, 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 the disciples, because I, I know us, I bet you some of them were trying to uh, one-up each other. Well, you start getting into casting out demons, there's there, one-upism is a huge deal, man. It's like you cast out one demon, Ben, I, I just went, poof, and like a whole room, just demons flying out everywhere. They were sharing their stories back and forth, back and forth. And it says they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
And then after hearing all of these rip-roaring stories, Jesus, the man of joy, enters into the banter. Jesus said, oh, this is fun. Hey, guys, check this out. I've got one for you. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah, that was good, but listen to this and this. Jesus said, one time, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Ah! And they were all like, oh, we can't top that. Like, what? I cast out a demon. And like Jesus just said, hey, y'all want to play one up? I got one up on you. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Oh, whoa. So I think they were, they were, they were pretty pumped. Jesus was excited for them, but here's what he said. Look what he says in verse 19 and 20. Jesus makes a point about their misplaced joy. He says, Beloved, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. I don't, he's not just saying your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Like He's not just, just talking about salvation. He's saying, guys, you get all excited about some external parts of ministry. You know, oh, we had a big ministry trip. Oh, we had a great altar call. Oh, we cast out demons. Jesus said, these are good. I love these things. But don't put your joy in the results of your outer ministry, but rather rejoice in the fact that the Father knows your name. You want joy. It's not found in those things. Because what happens if your joy is found in those things? What happens when you have a bad ministry time? Then your joy is all shook up. Right? Because don't rejoice in the outer circumstances of your ministry. Those things are beautiful. Those things are good. But rejoice in the fact that the Father of all creation knows your name. He knows who you are. Guys, the blessed, sovereign God the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the omnipotent, everlasting, all-powerful creator of the entire universe knows your name. Take joy in that. In fact, he knows you even better than you know yourself. He says in Luke 12, 6 and 7, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than a sparrow. Here's every sparrow sold in the market. I know every single one of them. There's Larry, there's Jenny, there's Billy Bob. I know every sparrow. He goes, and if I know every one of those, which those, those spirits are just going to, they're here today, gone tomorrow, they're just going to be sacrificed. He goes, I know every one of those, and you're way more valuable than a sparrow. I know the hair on your head. And for some of us, it's easier to count than others. But Jeff's not here, so I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to mention his name. He's going to watch this, isn't he? Jeremiah 1.5 says it this way, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations, he tells Jeremiah, when you were still in the womb. 
You were formed and fashioned, and I want you guys to hear this this morning. I'm speaking this prophetically over you. You were formed and fashioned by the perfect mind of a creative genius. And he makes no mistakes. He is a perfect artist. The Bible says you are his workmanship. That's an artistic term. You are his, his work of art. He knows you and he created you with a purpose. So take joy, beloved, that God knows you, that God sees you. You are not outside of his gaze. You are not beyond his care. You are fully known and still fully accepted in Christ. Now, for some of us, we, this idea of being fully known might scare us a little bit. You know, for some of us going, yay, God knows me. And others go, ooh, he knows, he knows all of me? Yeah. He knows you. He knows the warts and all. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what we're about to find out now is that knowing what he knows about you, he still has unending affection for you. So the first foundation of a joy-filled life is, is, is understanding and walking in the truth that God knows me. The second one, the joy of being known. The second one is the joy of being loved. John 15, 9 through 11. John 15, 9 through 11. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Now, beloved, we could just stop right there and just have a little hallelujah shouting service. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me. Guys, how much does the Father love the Son? Or let me put it this way. How much does God love God? <laughs> God loves God perfectly, right? The perfect, the height of love, the essence of love. God loved the Son with perfect love. And Jesus looks at his jacked up disciples and says, I love you the same way. You think the disciples were holy and all spiritual and stuff? Those guys were messed up. No, they were for real. I'm so glad the disciples are in the Bible. Amen. It gives me some hope. I mean, James and John had a bad ministry trip, and they came back and said, Jesus, can we rain down fireballs from heaven and kill them all? I mean, they, <laughs> they were asking for, like, mass murder. It's like, they were, these guys, they, they weren't all there. I'm telling you. And Jesus says, I love you with perfect love. Peter dared to rebuke Jesus' theology on suffering. And Jesus said, I love you with an everlasting love. I love you perfectly. I, did, I used to have a whole list of all the things the disciples were all messed up on. And I, I used to read that all the time. It just was so encouraging to me. I'll I probably get to heaven one day, you know, Peter will be like, hey, son, you want these hands, sucker? Like, I heard all the things you told about, talked about me. They probably won't be too happy to see me up there. But, but they were messed up. But that's the beautiful thing about the story. Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you into my circle. You guys are going to be my closest buddies. Now, I don't even know where I am now. John 15, yes, there we go. As the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, look at verse 11. These things, what things? 
the things we just read, right? All the things that Jesus had just said. He goes, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Read those last four words together with me. Joy may be full. He goes, guys, I know you and I love you with a perfect love of the Father and I'm telling you this so that your joy would be full. We were just singing it this morning. Jesus loves me. This I know. It's one of the first songs we all learn to sing as little kids. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. He loves you. And he wants you to know that because when we walk in that, when we fully embrace that I am loved by God, our joy is full. It increases our joy to stand secure in his love. So Jesus loves us with the same Father, the same love of the Father, and he tells us things so that our joy may be full. Guys, a joy-filled life emanates from an abiding heart. When our love, when our lives are planted firmly in the Father's divine affection, our joy germinates, grows, and it blooms. Not only does joy come from knowing that God knows me, but knowing what he knows about me, he still loves me. Look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 1 through 18. Psalm 139, 1 through 18. We won't read all the verses. I just have the ones I want to read up on the screen there. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Now look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts about me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Guys, the psalmist says, Lord, you know me. You know my coming and my going. If you go read the rest of those verses, he goes, you know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You know when I'm awake. You know me when I'm asleep. He says, you even know the words that are about to come out of my mouth before they actually come out of my mouth. You know the deepest, darkest things. You know parts of me that I don't even know. You know those dark places that I like to shove into a corner when I'm at a party because I don't want anybody else to see those things. You know those things. And then the psalmist says, and your thoughts about me are precious thoughts. You have precious thoughts about me. Because so many are your precious thoughts, I can't even count them all. Man. Let me make this declaration over you guys this morning. I want everybody to listen, and I want everybody to hear it. Now, no, don't just hear it with your ears. I want you to grab hold of this and receive this and, and just plant it in your chest and say, yes, I believe it. I want you to hear it. It's real simple. God loves you even in your weakness. Even in your brokenness, even in your process of maturing, God still likes you. Sometimes I like to use that word like instead of love. We just, love sometimes just, 
we just overuse it, right? It's like, I love God. I love my wife. I love pizza. I love football. Like, love just kind of comes out so easily sometimes, and it kind of just gets a little, it just loses its zap. But sometimes when I just say, God likes me, that hits me in a different place, you know? God actually likes me. And so I want you to know that this morning. God likes you. He loves you. He's not waiting for you to become perfectly spiritually mature before he goes, ah, now I enjoy you. Now I love you. That's what I'm talking about. He says, no, even in your process of maturing, I love you. And guys, when we grab a hold of this, this will change our lives. This truth will change our lives. Because what happens is, if we don't think God really enjoys us and likes us in our weakness, then what happens when we stumble? What happens when we do that thing we promised him we'd never do again? Oh, he's going to be upset. Oh, he's going to be mad. Oh, I bet you he's so frustrated with me. So what do we do? We run from God. We put ourselves in time out and try to prove to him by white-knuckling it that we're never going to do it again, and we try to prove our worth that we're worthy of his love. And we separate ourselves from him because he's angry at us. But if we know he loves us and enjoys us even in our weakness, then when we stumble, we run to him and go, oh, I know that you love me. I know that you have affection for me even in my weakness. Oh, would you cover me? I'm so sorry, Lord. I repent. I run to you. Cover me with your affections. Tell me how much you love me. We run to him in our weakness instead of from him in our weakness. So this will revolutionize the way that we interact with God if we really believe that he loves us in our weakness. He says in Jeremiah 31.3, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. He's drawn you to himself with loving kindness. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because God first, what? Loved us. A friend of mine wrote a song a while back that had the, had the line in there, Lord, because you love me first, you love me at my worst. He loved you before you loved him. He loved you before you did anything for him. He goes, my love for you is not based on if you can do the little song and dance. Because I love you because I'm a lover and I've made you to be the recipient of my affection. Sometimes I come before the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, here I am, the one you love. Here I am, Lord, the apple of your eye. It's me again. And sometimes I even ask the Lord, Lord, would you tell me again? Just tell me again how you feel about me. Just one more time. And he goes, oh, I love you. And I'm like, ooh, do it again, do it again. <laughs> like Mufasa, ooh, you know. Like, Lord, just tell me you love me. I love you. Oh, there's something that happens in my spirit. It, it, what it is, it's joy that begins to be released in my soul when I know that I'm fully known and fully loved by God. All right, the third foundation. We talked about the three, that we are known, that we are loved, and that we are enjoyed. So not only... Is joy rooted in the fact that we are known and loved, but that God actually enjoys interacting with us. God enjoys interacting with us. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we'll wrap this up. 
We're going to look at verses 29 and 30. John chapter 3, 29 and 30. This is John the Baptist speaking. Now, a little bit, just a couple of verses before this, a little bit of background. John the Baptist, you know, had a little ministry deal going. I'm using some kind of modern language. He had a little ministry out there in the desert, kind of out in the suburbs, way out, you know, away from the city center. And he had a little ministry going, and people, they said that people would come all the way out into the desert just to hear John speak. And John would baptize people. I mean, his, John, John's little church plant was going and blowing. I mean, it was, it was, it was up there. People were coming from everywhere to John's, John's little church. Again, it wasn't a church, but... You know, you know what I'm saying. And in this, in this particular verse here, in this context, people were coming up because now Jesus was on the scene, and now a bunch of people were kind of going over to Jesus' church. They were kind of following Jesus, and some people were coming asking John, say, John, dude, like, they're, they're your, your church, man, there's some people leaving your church and going to this other guy's church. So in our, in our modern terms, his church was dwindling just a little bit. But you know what? how John responded to this? Look at these verses. John says, He who has the bridegroom, or he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is full. He must increase. I must decrease. Wow. John says, I am not the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. It's his bride. He goes, I'm a friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears his voice. I stand and hear the loving voice of the bridegroom. Therefore, my joy is full. Here's what he's saying. He goes, guys, my joy overflows because I stand in the place of a God who loves to interact with me. Because he talks to me. Because he says, I stand and hear him. He goes, my God, the bridegroom king, loves to interact with me, therefore my joy is full. And then John was able to embrace the decrease of his ministry because he was full of joy. He goes, my joy is full. He needs to increase. I must decrease. Because you know you can have joy in seasons of decrease. Not if you've put your joy in the abundance. There's nothing wrong with abundance. We love abundance. God loves to bless us abundantly. But in times of decrease, and it's not just talking financially, but just different areas of our life, in times of decrease, if we've placed our joy in those things, then we're shaken. But if we've placed our joy in the fact that God knows me and loves me and enjoys interacting with me, we can stand in that place of interaction, let God speak to us, we can embrace decrease, and our joy is not shaken. In fact, our joy begins to grow. God's a speaking God. Interacting with the loving voice of the bridegroom was the foundation of John's joy. John was unmoved by decrease because he had been so moved by the voice of love. So again, in our terminology, John's ministry was dwindling in numbers. His offerings were probably down. His influence in the community was waning. 
There was another pastor in town named Jesus, and people were all going over to Jesus' church, and John said, I'm full of joy. See, experiencing God's joyful interaction produced joy in John, which strengthened him to stand in the midst of shaking. You see, God's joy strengthened John, right? That reminds us of a verse in Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord, can you all finish that one for me? The joy of the Lord is our, say it again, the joy of the Lord is our joy strengthens. But notice something about that passage, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Notice it didn't say joy is our strength. It didn't say joy is our strength. And it didn't even say our joy is our strength. It says the joy of the Lord. God's joy strengthens us. God's joy and delight and pleasure and love and his joyful interaction with us strengthens us to stand no matter what the circumstances. We are strengthened to stand in seasons of increase or decrease, feast or famine, good times or bad, when we rest in the assurance that we are fully known, fully loved, and enjoyed by God. So let me wrap this up with a, tying it back around to the neuroscience from the beginning. As I mentioned, in this season, we have all been walking around with a type of brain damage. Just scientifically, they've said all the stress and stuff has really done some neurological things to our brain. But God in his infinite wisdom has offered us a remedy called joy to rewire and retrain our brains. Neurologically speaking, Joy, and again, we've, we've been doing some study on this, and so the, this is just scientifically, medically speaking, neurologically speaking, here are some of the effects that joy, when we fully walk in joy, here's some of the effects it has on our lives. Joy helps us regulate our emotions. Joy helps us endure struggles and pain. Joy empowers us to love more deeply. Joy helps solidify our identity. Joy strengthens bonds in relationships. And joy helps inform our decisions and our behavior. This is medically speaking. We're talking about guys who are way more smarter than I am, guys who study the brain and all the intricacies of the brain. Not even believers, not even Christian people. I mean, some of them may, may be, but I mean, this isn't just some little theological deal I'm talking about. This is scientifically. They're saying these are the things that joy does for our brains. And I want us to be a people who don't just have a little joy here and there. I want us to be a people who walk in joy at all times. And how can we walk in joy in all times? When our foundations are sure. When we put our joy in the fact that God knows us, he loves us, and he enjoys interacting with us. So if our brains are running on empty, it's time to fuel up. It's time to fuel up our brains on joy. Let's feed our minds with these eternal truths that we talked about today. And then let us walk in such a way that others feel joy through us. Right? Because if it's true for me, oh, God, you know me and you love me and you enjoy interacting with me, yes. Well, guess what? If it's true for me, 
It's true for you, right? If God loves me with that kind of love, God loves you with that kind of love. So now when I interact with you, I'm interacting with someone who is the delight of the Father. I better not mistreat you then. Amen? So see, this thing is not just about me and God. This begins to spill out into our relationships. Because it may be one thing for me to like you, but you mistreat one of my girls. Why don't you lay a hand on one of my girls? Those are my girls, right? So now you're going to treat my girls differently because you know how much I love them. It's the same way with, with God. He goes, I want you to know that you're loved, but also you need to know that the others around you, yeah, I love them too. And when you mess with them, you're messing with the apple of my eye. So we want to walk in such a way as not just to have God's love for us, but we want to be the, the conduits. We want to be those who others actually, we begin to fuel their joy because of their interaction with us. What does that look like? Well, it goes back to the whole thing we've talked about today. When someone walks into a room, do I look like I'm happy to see them? Is there joy in my heart? Do I communicate to them, oh, gosh, here they are again, oh, Lord. You think that's going to produce joy in you? What happens when you walk in? Dude, I'm happy to see you, man. There's, um, there's something that happens in the brain at that moment. This isn't Joshua talking. Go read the science. There's something that triggers in the brain at that moment that just puts a little bit more joy in their heart. It triggers that, that right part of that brain. Again, I don't know all the, I wish I knew all the medical terms. I don't. But something triggers in their brain, and it just gives them a little bit more joy. Their car has a little bit more fuel in it. So we want to walk in such a way that others can experience and increase their joy as well. Jim Wilder, the one who wrote the book, The Other Half of Church, that I mentioned earlier, he writes this, and this is the last thing I'll say. I'm lying. I'll say a couple more things, but this is one of the last things I'll say. When our bodies can feel the glory of Jesus' face shining on us, our joy capacity grows. As our joy grows, our faces shine on each other, which makes other people feel joy. When we throw in some intentional practices to magnify joy, we are on the way to creating a high joy community. You see what he's saying there? When we receive it for ourselves and then we display that for others, their joy is full. And when their joy is full, it fuels my joy. And when my joy is full, it fuels their joy. And there's this cyclical joy. It just begins to grow and grow and grow and blossom and bloom. And before you know it, we are a joy-filled community walking in the joy of the Lord together. Let's stand. Understanding, I uh, came across a verse this week in Proverbs 13, 15, 13. I've read through the Proverbs many times, and so I know I've technically read this particular verse, but it was almost as if I'd never read it before. It was just brand new to me. It just kind of popped, popped right there. I think it was Wednesday or Thursday as I was preparing for the sermon. Proverbs 15, 13, it says this, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. Beloved, when we're walking in joy, our face is going to show it. 
And if we want others to have joy, our face needs to show it. Who knew that old song was so theologically correct? If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Here we go. If you're happy and you know it, then you're... If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. What a deep theological song that is. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. Beloved, can we just let our faces shine the light of God's countenance on each other? We pray that God would shine the light of his countenance on us, and we should, but we shouldn't stop there. Lord, let the light of your face shine on us, and let us shine the light of your beautiful face on each other. Amen? You guys want to walk with this with me? I want to be a joy bringer. I want to be a joy receiver and a joy bringer. Let's be a joyful people and walk in the joy of the Lord together. Amen. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for your joy and your pleasure and your delight in us, even in our weakness, even in our immaturity. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I ask that this truth of your affection, that you know us and love us and love interacting with us, I pray, Lord, that that would grip our hearts in a special way and grip our hearts in a new way and that we would know the lengths and the widths and the depths and the height of your love, this love that surpasses knowledge. And we would be love receivers and love givers, joy receivers and joy givers. And Lord, I pray that you would also just give us strength and patience to be joy bringers to those who get on our nerves, especially those, Lord. Lord, I don't want to be, I don't want to pick and choose who I shine your light to. Let me just be a joy bringer to everyone. And show me ways of Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would right now give us creative ways to experience your joy and to, uh, to be bringers of your joy to others. How can we stir up each other's joy? Holy Spirit, would you give us creative ways? Just speak to us even now. Even now, just drop some little ideas from heaven into our minds. And I pray that as we go on today, that you would look upon us with favor that you would indeed shine the light of your face upon us. Give us peace. Increase our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode from Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary Community Church, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com.